stand as you're able for today's Old Testament lesson from the book of Exodus, chapter 12, verse 29 through 42. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. Pharaoh arose in the night, he and all his officials and all the Egyptians, and there was a loud cry in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron in the night and said, Rise up, go away from my people, both you and the Israelites. Go, worship the Lord, as you said. Take your flocks and your herds, as you said, and be gone. And bring a blessing on me, too. The Egyptians urged the people to hasten their departure from the land, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, with their kneading bowls wrapped up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The Israelites had done as Moses told them. They had asked the Egyptians for jewelry of silver and gold and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so they let them have what they asked. And so they plundered the Egyptians. The Israelites journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides children. A mixed crowd also went up with them and livestock in great numbers, both flocks and herds. They baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt. It was not leavened because they were driven out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the Israelites had lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the companies of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. That was for the Lord a night of vigil, to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That same night is a vigil to be kept for the Lord by all the Israelites throughout their generations. This is the word of God for the people of God. Terry, thank you so much for reading our lesson and to all of you for your presence today. Uh, Those of you who are online with us, what a joy it is to see you and an honor to share God's word with each of you. To the Maynard family, uh, better known as Gemma's family, uh, Gemma Elizabeth, what a, what a privilege it is to share this day with you as well. Um, we are having a bit of a baby boom uh, here at Brentwood, and that's just in our staff alone, uh, plus uh, our membership as well. If you didn't know, James Wells, who directs our youth choir, he and uh, Amy are the proud grandparents of Sonny James, uh, who was born this week, and our associate, Jonathan Anderson, Jonathan and Emily, had twins on Monday, Uh, Bridget and Simon have arrived as well. And so we celebrate the birth and the life of those special ones among us. And what that does to a family is just glorious, isn't it? It's just glorious. Jim, thank you for your prayer. Uh, this morning. And just to let you all know, I am going to be in the dunk tank, but I'm not going to tell you what time. Uh, so you just come and, and uh, you can get jam if you want it, uh, but you just come and be surprised. We look forward to next Sunday. So if you're visiting with us today, let me tell you where we are. Uh, you're joining us on week seven of an 11-week series in the book of Exodus. Our Hebrew friends 
Our Jewish friends call it the book of Shemot, which is the book of names. Uh, we call it the book of Exodus, which means departure, which gives away the theme of the book. And we've arrived at chapter 12 today. Chapter 7 through 12 depict for us the 10 plagues that God inflicted on the Egyptians because of Pharaoh's demeaning and dehumanizing policies against the Hebrew people. The final plague, to me at least, is rather ironic because chapter 1 begins with Pharaoh's genocidal edict, ethnic cleansing. He's going to put to death all the male Jewish babies who are under three months old. Moses was intended to be drowned in the Nile. And at this point, by chapter 12, Pharaoh's policies are backfiring on him. Or as what my father used to say, what goes around comes around. Paul says in Galatians 6 verse 7 something very similar. You reap what you sow. And with this tenth and final plague that is to be the death of the firstborn to Egypt, what goes around comes around. I remember Emerson, Ralph Waldo Emerson, once put it like this. I love this. He said, if you sow a thought, you reap an act. If you sow an act, you reap a habit. If you sow a habit, you reap a character. And if you sow character, you reap a destiny. God was exceedingly patient with Pharaoh. In fact, God is self-described. He describes himself in Exodus 32, verse 6. I, the Lord, he said, am compassionate and gracious. I am very patient, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And so the truth of the matter is, in Exodus, God gave numerous opportunities to Pharaoh to repent. I mean, in our house, when we were raising our teenagers, we always thought we were generous when we said three strikes and you're out. But how about 10 strikes? Yahweh gave to Pharaoh 10 opportunities. But as we talked about last week, sometimes, have you ever noticed how God's mercy and grace sometimes makes the hard-hearted even harder? Now, it's interesting to me to note that all ten plagues involve nature. Whether it's boils or locusts or flies or lice, Rabbi Ken Spiro, who has written a book on Hebrew history, explains the Jewish concept that nature does not act independently of God, but he also adds that God doesn't like to interfere with nature that he has set up. God can do, of course, whatever God chooses to do, wants to do, likes to do, but God doesn't often play around with the physical world. Consequently, most miracles, Old and New Testament, involve natural phenomena that has godly timing. But these plagues are a little different. It seems to me in Exodus that God may be flipping the laws of nature here because there was hail, but it wasn't the frozen kind that we're familiar with. It was on fire. There was the plague of darkness that apparently was so dense, says the scripture, that nobody could see or move. It was like pudding. Moreover, while these afflictions were difficult on the Egyptians, 
They had no effect on their Jewish neighbors. This is different. Incidentally, if you didn't know, the ancient Egyptians believed that every force in nature has a different god to control it. Hapi was the god of the Nile. Re was the sun god. Heket was the god of the frogs. Geb was the god of dust. Capri was the lord of the flies. And so what you can see happening here is these plagues represent a battle between Yahweh and Pharaoh. It's a contest between the God of Abraham and the gods of Egypt. And by the way, if you didn't know, the contest is going to reveal that God alone is in charge of God's creation. It's also evident to us that at this point, Pharaoh's anti-life policies are creating a chaos that was threatening the creation as God intended it to be. And so Pharaoh's moral code, if he had one at all, is bankrupt and the kingdom of Egypt is relapsing into primeval mayhem, chaos. There is such a thing, however, and this is the theological part of the teaching, there is such a thing as natural law. Have you heard of this? Natural law is the notion that we as human beings made in the image of God possess an intrinsic and eternal value, a moral code given by God that governs our reasoning and behavior. You say, can you give me some scripture for that? I have some. Paul explains natural law in Romans 1.19. Here it is. For what can be known about God is plain to us because God has shown it to us. Ever since the creation of the world, God's eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood, perceived, and seen through the things he has made. And you're one of those that God has made. That's natural law. In other words, every one of us who are present, we were born with an instinct for God. It's intuitive. It's a God-shaped hole that nothing else but God can fulfill. It was Augustine, St. Augustine, who said there are two books that reveal who God is and what God is about. One is the book of Scripture, and the other is the book of nature. That's why I walk two or three days a week at Radnor. Have I ever mentioned Radnor to you? It's a beautiful place because when you see these leaves in the fall season, you hear, I do anyway, I hear the voice of God through the handiwork of his creation. Pause it there for a moment. My wife and I were in Portland, Oregon a few weeks ago. We were performing a wedding there for some dear friends and we happened to be there at the same time as the Dahlia Flower Festival. Now, I don't know if you've heard of that. It's in Canby, Oregon, which is about a half an hour south of Portland, and I've got pictures from the Flower Festival. Now, I took these pictures. If, if I don't make it in this gig of preaching, I'll probably be a photographer, right? Amen? I didn't get any amens earlier either. Anyway, we walked through acres and acres of just unadulterated beauty. <laughs> And I said to my wife, you know, there's a reason that Jesus taught us to consider the lilies. There's a reason that God said you ought to learn something from the birds. 
Because nature, after all, is the art of God. And I, I can't explain it to you, though I don't have to if you know about it. Those flowers articulated to us the majesty and glory of God's creation. Martin Luther, the great reformer, once put it like this. God writes the gospel not in the Bible alone, but also in the trees and the flowers and the clouds and the stars. It's beautiful. The wedding was actually in a vineyard, the Willamette Valley. I said it right, the Willamette Valley, just full of these scenic vineyards. Uh, someone asked me when I got back, uh, Pastor, did you sample the fruit of the vine? And I said, that's none of your business. <laughs> but I said, if you did, you can be sure it was for strictly medicinal purposes. Just trying to be biblical. But here's my question. If there is such a thing as natural law, and we believe there is, then what in the world is happening? Why, why the sin? Why, why all this evil? Well, I have a scriptural answer for you. If you keep reading in Romans 1, you'll see why. Listen to this. This is Eugene Peterson's paraphrase in the message. Listen to this. What happened was this. People knew God perfectly well, but they didn't treat him like God, refusing to worship him. They trivialized themselves in silliness and confusion so that there was neither sense nor direction left in their lives. They pretended to know it all, but they were illiterate regarding life. And they traded the glory of God who holds the whole world in his hands for cheap figurines that you can buy at any roadside stand. So God said, in effect, if that's what you want, <laughs> that's what you get. They traded the true God for a fake God and worshiped the God that they made instead of the God who made them, thus refusing to know God, they soon didn't even know how to be human. That was Pharaoh's problem. He lost his, humi his humanity. Have you ever discovered that there is a correlation between the loss of faith and the loss of humanity? The loss of my trust in God and the loss of civility, for example. Pharaoh's policies were inhumane and they did not reflect the harmony and shalom of the Creator God. And I don't have to tell you, there are consequences we don't like to talk about it, but Romans 6.23 is right. The wages of sin is death, and we know it's true. And by the way, the wrath of God is not God hurling lightning rods on random sinners. That's not the wrath of God. The wrath of God is simply God allowing us to suffer the consequences of our own sinful choices. God loves God forgives, God is gracious, but God, like a loving parent, will not shield us from the consequences of our choices because that would be enabling instead of sanctifying. But I believe, according to Exodus, that these plagues are the consequences. It is the 10th plague 
That is the straw that breaks the camel's back. After all of Pharaoh's defiance and resistance, after all of his policies, now he's getting a taste of his own medicine. His own people are suffering the most grievous plague of all, the death of the firstborn that he had instituted earlier. Incidentally, in the Hebrew language, that word plague is the word negeth. It's akin to the Hebrew word for virus or pestilence or pandemic or COVID. It was likely a virus that took the lives of the Egyptian firstborn. But the literal meaning of negeth is this, stumbling stone. What for the Egyptians was a stumbling stone became for the Jews a stepping stone. This is why, as they say, you never waste a crisis because whatever the obstacle is in your life, whatever the, the stumbling stone is, God has a way of making stumbling stones into stepping stones to freedom, to worship, to service, to promise, to new life. You know, it's also interesting to me that if you flip over to the New Testament, to the little epistle of 1 Peter 2, Peter personifies Jesus as a stone. He says Jesus is the stone that the builders rejected. He's a stumbling block to the non-believer, but to those of us who are being saved, who trust in his name, the stumbling block has become our stepping stone to rebirth, to a new heart. Indeed, 1 Peter says, the stumbling stone has now become the corner stone on which the whole building is built. Let me go back to Oregon for just a moment. On the day of the rehearsal, it's two hours earlier there, so we were ready for bed about eight o'clock and up at four, uh, which is not typically so here, but we got up early on the day of the rehearsal and we went to the coast. We had never seen the Pacific Ocean. And so my wife and I drove to Cannon Beach to see the Haystack Rock. Have you, all, have you ever seen the Haystack Rock? It's 235 feet tall, and that rock is home to literally hundreds of birds. It's a bird sanctuary, and it houses a diverse community of birds. They come from all over. They come to the rock to lay their eggs. They come to the rock to raise their chicks and to give them wings. People come from all over to see that rock. I read something the other day that said in 2,000 years, because of erosion, that that rock will become a pebble and those birds will lose their home. My wife and I discussed it on the way home of what it means to say that God is our rock. What does that mean to say that God is our fortress, our deliverer? The psalmist says, God is my rock and my salvation. And 2,000 years forward or back makes no difference. God is bigger. God is more loving. God is greater. There is no erosion in this foundation. Well, the last plague opened the door for the Hebrews to escape. And like a good priest would do, chapter 12, verse 37, they take attendance. How many went? 600,000 men, and they didn't count 
the women and the children. That's a lot of people. But verse 38 adds a line that I had never seen before. In fact, when I read it, I thought somebody has put that in. That's a recent paraphrase. And then I went back to the old King James. No, it's there. I just didn't see it. And this is what it says. A mixed crowd also went with the Hebrews and livestock in great numbers, both flocks and herds. A mixed crowd. I always thought it was just one ethnic group escaping. I always thought it was just the Israelites, the Hebrews, the Jews, but apparently it's not. That word mixed, do you know what that means in the Hebrew? Foreigner. Someone from another tribe. And when they left, they took others with them, a mixed crowd. There had to be some Canaanites in that group. Uh, Moses married a Midianite, so they had Midianites, they had Hittites, they had Moabites, they probably had termites. They even had Egyptians. There were even Egyptians in that group who had become so disillusioned and disenfranchised by their Pharaoh's policies that the Hebrews said, come on and go with us. And I don't know about you, but this is the biggest miracle in the story. That in a fractured, chaotic, polarized, tribalistic culture, they brought others with them to a new promise. Well, of course they did. Don't you remember the covenant that God made with Abraham? It wasn't just to make him great. It was to make him a blessing to all the nations. The biblical mission and mandate from the beginning has not simply been to bless me and you. It's been to make of us a blessing so that we can bring others with us. Did you know that when Jesus stepped into paradise after his death on the cross, that he didn't go alone? He took with him a dying thief. And this isn't in the Bible. This is the Revised Chapel Version. But when they went in through the gates, some of the saints looked at the thief and said, how'd he get in? And the thief heard it and he said, the man on the middle cross said I could come. Don't go alone. The measure of a disciple is not in counting your own blessings. The measure of a disciple is how many people would say that you were the blessing to them, that you brought them along. There's one more thing and I'm through, and I mean it this time. On that dark night when the final plague played out, as the scripture says, from palace to prison to pasture, death of the firstborn, Pharaoh did what any ruler would have done. He summoned Moses and Aaron and said, go on, or in our language, get. You are free to go, go and worship your God and take your flocks. And the last thing he said to them in verse 32 was this, before you leave, would you ask God to bless me? 
this king, <laughs> this ruler who had every conceivable material blessing, who had the world by the tail, actually asked these two slave boys that he had held captive to give him a blessing. In all of his pomp and pageantry, he had everything a man could want, and he lacked the one thing that he needed most. He didn't know God. Would you please pray with me? Would you bless me before you go? Did they? We don't know. Now, if I'd been there, I would have blessed Pharaoh all right. I would have blessed him out. We don't know. But I'll tell you what we do know. Our God is a God who delivers. Whatever our need, whatever the request, we have a God who delivers. You say, prove it, I will. Fifteen centuries later, there was another deliverer who was sent, and he actually became the Passover lamb. He became the sacrifice that would deliver us from slavery to sin and death. But before he left, before he ascended, this rabbi stood on a hillside and said to his disciples, I want you to bless those who curse you and pray for those who persecute you. And he did. He did what he said. On Good Friday, he looked down from the cross that he was nailed to. He looked on the people who strung him up and he blessed them. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't have any idea what they're doing. Now, I don't know your heart today. I can sometimes see it in your eye. Some of you almost didn't come today. Not sure you wanted to be here when you walked in the door, but you're here. Some of you came with four flat tires, metaphorically. You're at the end of your rope and you need a blessing. You're in the right spot. Jesus is here, the deliverer is here, and he is the blessing. And he wants so much to bless you. But even more than that, he wants to bless others through you. He wants you to be a stepping stone to bring somebody else with you, maybe who's not even of your tribe, so that all may know that we have a God who's still in the delivery business. You are the blessing for Christ's sake. And when we become the blessing, we fulfill the scripture and we fulfill the mission, may it be so, in you, in me, in us, to the glory of God. Amen.